Well, good morning, church. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9. Back in college, we had a daily chapel at Cedarville, at least on the school days, and there was an older professor who didn't lead music all the time, but uh, when he did, he typically led a specific song called The Lion of Judah. And for whatever reason, I think a lot of different reasons went into it, but there, the student body collectively were always excited and hype for this song, The Lion of Judah. I mean, most, most chapels, you had a pretty simple band layout, you know, a few guitars, piano, drums, But when the Lion of Judah was going to be sung, I mean, you had trumpets and trombones and orchestra and choir. And so when you saw that, I mean, everyone just anticipation starts to to be building. It was a glorious song to sing. And so when you walk into chapel and you saw this professor was leading, there was just this collective anticipation that would be building. And he would, he would do a couple of, you know, normal songs or just reg- some of the regular songs at first. But you knew this one song was coming because it was his song. It was his song. He'd do a couple other songs, but you're just waiting, you're just waiting, you're just waiting. And then, boom, this was his song, The Lion of Judah. And church, this morning, we are going to be learning about the glorious mercy of God. And church, singing of the glory of God's mercy, like we just sang, that, those lines we just sang, he who gave life to my body breathed with mercy on my soul. Let me tell you something, praising God for his mercy, that is going to be our song when we are gathered around the throne of God. That's, that's ours, okay? The angels, the angels, they're probably going to take the lead on holy, 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 Okay? And we, we can be okay with that. They've, they've been practicing it more. They've experienced it probably to a greater degree. They understand it. They've been in that. They, they know holy, holy, holy. But hear me, uh, they, they, don't, they, they know what the mercy of God is, but they have never experienced it like you and I have. Only sinful human beings who had rebelled against God, who God owed nothing to, and yet out of his goodness, he chose to pour out his mercy on us. Listen, we are going to be the only ones who are going to be able to sing from the bottom of our hearts to the top of our lungs about the glorious mercy of God. Now, you can be respectful about it. I don't want you to embarrass me when we're in heaven. If Gabriel or Michael starts to take the lead on a mercy song, like, just be respectful, but say, hey, Gabe, we got this one. We got this one, all right? The mercy of God. This is, this is our song to sing. And all of creation is anticipating this day when the full number of God's people from both Jew and Gentile have been welcomed into the kingdom and are ready to worship our merciful God forever. And so I want to prepare you for that day this morning by helping you see the glorious mercy of God. We are in our second sermon in in Romans 9 through 11 Often, a few chapters, most of us like to just skip over or avoid. But it's a glorious section of Romans that we have to 
dig into, and I'm thankful for our church body. We have the maturity to be able to lean into some of the tougher passages of Scripture and be able to discuss and press and chew and talk and, and grow together in. I mean, I want to be a church body that can, we don't have to just always stay on a superficial level of things we can all agree on. I want to be able to talk about spiritual gifts and eschatology and some of these things. We need to be able to have that maturity to step into them, and I'm grateful that we are. And so we are going through Romans 9 through 11 as part of our whole series preaching through Paul's letter to the Romans. But this section of Romans we've titled Righteousness Out to All People. And I've titled it that because it's in these chapters that we learn how God is going to get his righteousness out to all people and how we know that this, in fact, will be accomplished. You'll remember back in Romans 8, we received some glorious promises from God. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the question could be asked from the Roman church, Hey Paul, these are some great promises God is making to believers, but didn't he make some great promises to Israel? And a lot of them are not yet here with us. I mean, some of them are, but most are not. Paul, has God's word failed? That's what we talked about last week. Has God's word failed? Paul answers that question and says, absolutely not. God's word wins. And he explained that by teaching us that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God never made these promises to every single ethnic descendant of Israel. God has always had a chosen people to set a fatherly, redeeming, covenantal love upon. And next week we'll see that he has called out people from Jews and Gentiles to form the ecclesia, the church, meaning the called out ones. Last week we saw that God chose to set a special covenantal love upon Jacob and not Esau, and we saw that he chose to do that before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's where we ended last week. We ended with God saying, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's a heavy verse. Now, what naturally arises in our hearts when we hear that? Well, what arises naturally in my heart is the cry of, that's not fair. That can't be right. Maybe look at some different translations, go back to the Greek. That can't be right. And so what Paul will do in these next few verses is answer the question, is God right to do this? And does God have the right to do this? That's, that's where we'll be the next couple of weeks. Is God right to do this? And does God have the right to do this? I'm, probably, I'm only going to be able to get to verse 18 this morning. Um, next week we'll look at more. Does God have the right to do this? But this morning the question is, is God right and just and righteous? Is God right to choose to show mercy to some and not to others? And we'll answer that question with four points. If you're taking notes, this is where I'm going. First, God does not owe us mercy. That'll be point number one. Second, God's mercy is free and without external constraints. Third, 
God is glorified in his display of both his mercy and judgment. I know that's a longer one. I'll repeat these, and we'll talk about them as we go back through if you miss these. Fourthly, God's mercy gushes from his heart. First time I've ever used the word gushes in a sermon point, but I think you'll see it's appropriate, okay? So is God right to choose to show mercy on some and not to others? We'll answer that with four points. First, God does not owe us mercy. Second, God's mercy is free and without external constraints. Third, God is glorified in his display of both his mercy and his judgment. And fourthly, God's mercy gushes from his heart. Let's pray. We need the Lord's help. (laughs) Father, please help. Please help. This is your word. We want to understand it and know it. We we, we want to believe it. But Lord, we need your help to be able to enjoy it, to receive it, for it to produce fruit in our lives. So Father, I ask that you would humble us and that you would exalt yourself and that we would come to enjoy you and who you have revealed yourself to be in your word. Help us in these hard things. Stir up in us a greater love for you and for one another as we walk through these things, God. I ask for, Lord, that you would continue to be patient with me as I am an inadequate vessel to proclaim wonders that are too excellent for my words and my mind. And Father, would you, would you please empower me, speak through me, help people hear what you want them to, what you want them to hear, and help your truth be what abides and produces fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Okay, listen up, fellow human beings that are prone to a sense of entitlement. And I'm including myself with you on that. I'm there with you. The pride that still exists in our hearts can at times cause us to wrongly believe that God owes us mercy. But church, we are in no position to be making demands of God. If you've been following with us in our study of Romans, you should not get to this point in Paul's letter to the Romans and demand that God give you what you deserve. No, no. You must remember that Paul has already successfully prosecuted both Jews and Gentiles, and he's shown us all that we are all unrighteous. He's exposed the fact that none of us have been righteous. No, not one. 
Some of us have been unrighteous in our obvious rebellion against God, and some of us have been unrighteous in our prideful, self-righteous legalism, but all of humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us have committed cosmic treason against the rightful king of the universe. All of us have been considered his enemies, and the wages of all of that, what we deserve from God is his wrath, his condemnation, physical and spiritual death, and eternal separation from him forever. That is what all humanity deserves, church. And it is pride in the heart that gets to the, this point of Romans and cries out for fairness or justice. The humble heart gets to this point of the letter and it cries out for mercy. Mercy. Mercy is, let's, let's define it here, what mercy is. In, when in relation to God being merciful to humans, a concise definition would be this. God's mercy is when he brings help to the wretched and when he doesn't give the sinner what they deserve. I'll say that again. God's mercy is when he brings help to the wretched and when he doesn't give the sinner what they deserve. That last half is, I think, what is commonly talked about in a lot of churches about the mercy of God. It's, you know, trying to think through mercy and grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is favor that we don't. Um, That definitely is a big element of God's mercy, but there's also an element of God's mercy in him showing pity and compassion towards those in need and taking action on it, all right? So there's an aspect of God's mercy that he's, he's bending down, he's helping the wretched, he's, he's showing compassion to us, and he's not giving guilty sinners what they deserve. We should never demand of God that he give us what we deserve, Please do not pray that. I don't like to critique or nitpick prayers. I like you to just do your thing. But if that's what you're asking for, you're doing it wrong, okay? You are praying wrong. Do not ask God to give you what you deserve. Humanity must not cry out for what we deserve. We must cry out for mercy. But listen, God does not owe us mercy. You see, we need to have a different mindset about God's mercy. He doesn't owe it to anyone. But we, in our pride, get offended by him choosing to show mercy to some and not to others, don't we? I do. We think of it, we think of it like a doctor who has 10 patients at the hospital he's caring for, and he chooses to treat seven of them, but the other three he chooses not to treat. And we think, well, that's not right of the doctor. And you know what? We're correct in that situation. Why? Why are we correct in that situation? Because a medical provider does owe care to everyone at their hospital. Everyone in the hospital has a right to be treated. The doctor is getting paid to take care of all that come through the door. He owes that to them. But what about this? What if there are 10 convicted criminals deserving death and a judge pardons seven of them. 
what do we say then? Do we say, how dare he not pardon all ten? No. We say, what a merciful judge. He's more merciful than I would have been. In fact, he's maybe too merciful. Should we really be pardoning seven criminals? I actually, you know what, I actually, I actually don't feel comfortable with how merciful he's being right now. Church, that's how you're going to walk out of here this morning. I'm telling you, you're going to walk out of here uncomfortable with how merciful God is because God is so much more merciful than we are. So don't let your pride skew your view of humanity or yourself. Go back and read the first few chapters of Romans, and you will see that we are not 10 patients in God's hospital that he owes treatment to, and we can therefore make demands of him. No, you go back and read the first part of Romans, and you see that we are the 10 convicted criminals on death row. And the fact that God pardons some is absolutely amazing. And it makes us a bit uncomfortable. And we prefer to add some stipulations to that. Church, do not be offended that God has chosen to sow mercy to some and not all. Be amazed and in awe of the fact that God has chosen to show mercy to anyone. Church, our God is a God who is rich in mercy. And he did not owe it to anyone. There's a difference between being rich and owing people money. There's a difference than being rich and not owing anyone anything and yet generously giving it. Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Our God is a God who is rich in mercy, church, and he did not owe it to anyone. He's rich in mercy. He's the Daddy Warbucks of mercy. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, take that one. God is the Daddy Warbucks of mercy. But he doesn't owe it to anyone, and therefore do not demand that God give you what you deserve. Please do not do this. We must cry out to God for mercy. And the good news is he is rich in mercy. He is generous with his mercy. He loves to give mercy. This is the desire of his heart. If you could squeeze God, mercy would come out. But would Pharaoh agree? Would Esau agree? Would Ishmael agree? Would Caiaphas agree? Would Judas agree? I mean, it seems like Pharaoh didn't quite have the same chance to experience the mercy of God as Moses did. It seems to me like Paul had a better chance to experience God's mercy than Caiaphas did. I mean, what about Judas? Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Was he given that same merciful intercessory prayer for Judas? Jesus walks down to a pool with a multitude of invalids, and he only heals one. How is that right? 
If God chooses some and not others before they were born, before they had done good things or bad things, and if his choosing is not based upon their works but his call, if he chooses to show mercy on some and not others, and it's not dependent upon them, then what does this say about God? Let me tell you what it says. With love, it says that he is God and we are not. And any concern of him being unrighteous in that situation is you judging God with a measuring stick of your own making. You showed up on this planet, what, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, and you've constructed a little measuring stick of what you think righteousness is and how you measure up people to righteousness, and you're going to take that and measure it up to God? You're going to judge God by your little human standards you just came up with, what you think righteousness is? God sets the standards. God defines things for us, church. And look what Paul does to help us learn that he's going to show us that God's mercy is free and without external constraints and beyond our little measuring sticks of what we think is right or wrong. And he helps us to see this by taking us back to the days of Moses and Pharaoh. Look back at Romans 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul takes us back to Exodus 33 to help us learn that God's mercy is free and without external constraints or conditions. The context of Exodus 33 is Moses, he's just been up on Mount Sinai with God. He comes down. The people had started worshiping a golden calf. The Lord's wrath burns against them. Moses intercedes for the people, and the Lord relents. Moses then later asks God to show him his glory. God, show me your glory. He's essentially asking God to show him who he is. He wants to know what's at the very core of his character, what's at the very deepest part of his heart. He's seen God send plagues on Egypt. He's seen him burn in righteous anger. He's seen him relent from wrath. And now he wants God to show him who he truly is. That's what Moses asks. And this is what God answers with. Exodus 33, 19. What Paul quotes here, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, this is at the core of who God is. He is the great I am, the self-existent one. That means that he is not bound or constrained by anything outside of himself. His sovereign will is free. His grace is free. His mercy is free. 
And so amongst Christians, I mean, for hundreds of years, there's always been this discussion of free will. And listen, I believe we have free will, but I think we all need to agree that God's will is freer than ours. God's will is freer than ours. We do have a will. You may call it free if you like, but let's not wrongly assume that our will is freer than God's. I remember when I first started working as a physician assistant and I got my prescriptive privileges, started treating people in the emergency department. And I remember getting that prescription pad and for the first time now not being a student, I no longer had to prescribe you know, what my teacher or preceptors told me to do. But now I had the freedom to prescribe and treat people with what I thought was best for them. Wow, you feel a lot of, a lot of freedom, a lot of, a lot of control there. That freedom, it was felt for a few hours. Then I get a call from the pharmacy. Yeah, we don't have that medication. You're going to have to prescribe something else. Oh, okay. I'm maybe not as free as I thought I was. Okay, I'll change it to something else. What do you have? Okay, well, based on what you have, now I have to prescribe this. Okay, all right. But I'm still free. It's still my, it's still my choice. A few hours later, get a call from the insurance yeah, we're not going to cover that. You're going to have to change it to something else. Oh, okay. I guess I'm not as free as I, I thought I was. All right, well, what are you going to cover? Okay, based on what you're going to cover, then I'm going to have to change it to this, right? Okay, good. I'm still, I'm still in control. Still my decision. Call a few hours later from the patient. Yeah, I'm not taking that medication. My friend knows a friend who's a nurse who saw this one thing that I'm not going to take that medication. I'm like, okay. I don't know. I'll sign the pad. You just, you do what you want. I don't care. But I guess I'm not as free as I thought I was. You see, I was free to write whatever I wanted on that pad of paper, but there were some external constraints and conditions to what I could actually get done. And my point is, we should not want God's plans or our salvation or his dispensing of mercy to be dependent upon our human will or exertion because we are not as free as we thought. We're not. In fact, one of the main themes of the Bible is that we are slaves to sin. The Bible never teaches that we're robots, but it talks a lot about us being slaves. And we needed a redeemer to lead us out from our slavery to sin. Paul's been showing us this in Romans. Yes, before you came to Christ, you made free choices. You either chose to sin by breaking all the rules or you chose to self-righteously sin by trying to keep all the rules. But before you came to Christ, you were not truly free. You were enslaved to your sin and your pride. Yes, you made choices, but they were constrained by your desires, by your frailty, by your weaknesses, by your environment, by your finiteness. What you needed and what I needed, we needed the truly free one. We needed a self-existent one. We needed the great I am to, to come and put on flesh and to freely choose to love us, to dispense mercy to us, and to show compassion on us, not because he had to, and not because there were things outside of himself that obligated him to do so, but because he wanted to. He freely wanted to show mercy to you. 
from the deepest part of his heart, he freely chose to show mercy to you. For this is what it means to be God, to be the self-existent one. He has the freedom to choose to be gracious to whom he will be gracious and to choose to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Now, that's not to say that our will is not involved. It certainly is involved. But our experience of God's mercy is not dependent upon our will. And thanks be to God for that news. For if salvation and our experience of mercy and the spread of the gospel and the discipling of the nations were dependent upon the will of man, there would be no hope for this world. Hell would be full and heaven would be empty. But thanks be to God, while his purposes and plans involve our wills, they do not depend upon them. Look at what he says in verse 16. Romans 9, verse 16. Thanks be to God. It says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Does it involve our wills? Absolutely. But it does not depend upon them. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the experience of God's redeeming love, his sovereign and free choice to show mercy on his people is, is his free will choice to make. God's mercy is free and without external constraints or conditions. But what about those who he has not chosen to show mercy to? Again, what about Pharaoh? I mean, I thought God was a God, like 1 Timothy 2.4 says. 1 Timothy 2.4 we'll have up on the screen. I thought God was a God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So how can he freely choose to show mercy to some and not to others? And that is a tough question. And it's a question we all, as Christians, have to at some point approach. Because regardless of where you stand in your belief of God's sovereignty and our salvation, all Christians have a problem with this verse. I don't care what denomination you've come from or whatnot. We all have a problem with this verse because we see a verse like that, and we are bound to believe that. That is God's word. We believe this is a desire of God's, and yet we also believe what Daniel 12.2 says. And Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So unless you are a universalist and disregard the doctrine of hell, and I would say that is not, faithful Christians do not do that, you are therefore then confronted with the problem that God desires all people to be saved, but not everyone is saved. And let's, let's talk through this, all right? Historically, Christians have understood this by 
two different ways in general. I'm speaking in generalities. Obviously, with individuals, we all have differing, you know, different uh, nuances and beliefs. But in generalities, Christians historically, faithful Christians on both sides, have understood this in two different ways. And they've understood, they've, they've, they've confronted the problem that God desires all people to be saved, but not everyone is saved, with that there must be something God values more in the universe than the salvation of every single human being. All right, that's where most all Christians have come to. There must be something that God values more in the universe than the salvation of every single human being. You've kind of had two branches of Christianity see this differently, and regardless of which branch you're in, you are welcome here, and we love you, and we want to do life together, okay? But one branch would say that God values protecting human free will more than he values the salvation of every single individual, while another branch would say that God values his glory more than the salvation of every single individual. And again, regardless of where you're at on that, we we welcome you, and I love you, and I'm willing to meet, and we can talk, and we can dialogue. But I would be of the understanding that in order for God to be consistent with his character— He must ultimately value and treasure and display the most valuable thing in the universe, which is himself and his glory. I mean, when a a house is on fire here on earth, we are all right to, to believe, get the people out first. Humans are the most valuable thing in that house, absolutely. And it's sometimes hard for us to get our minds around that there could be something more valuable in the universe than us. Now listen, we do have great dignity, value, and worth, but it's because we are made in his image. But he is the supreme being and treasure of the universe. And God is primarily glorified in his display of his mercy, but we also do see at times that he is glorified in displaying his wrath and his judgment. Look back at verse 17, Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Skip down to 22. This is where we'll be getting to next week, but it goes along with this point. 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So why why was Pharaoh raised up? God tells us Pharaoh was raised up. His heart was hardened, and the plagues came down on Egypt so that God's glory and power and name would be proclaimed and displayed in all the earth. Did that that succeed? I mean, think about it. Thousands of years later, we're nowhere close to Egypt. I don't think any of us are descendants of Israel, and we're talking about the glorious mercy of God. You go back and you read the Exodus account, though, and you'll find several verses that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and you'll find several verses that say God hardened his heart. 
Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. Did God harden his heart? Yes. Are there sometimes two explanations for one thing? Yes. But get this. Did God create evil in his heart? No. No. Did God create, and that's where we need to clarify this. Did God create evil in his heart? No. God is not the author of evil. And so the question of how did God harden his heart is an important question to consider as we consider if God is right and just to choose to show mercy on some hearts and to harden others. Because before Moses was even sent to Pharaoh, God said in Exodus 4.21, this is is before you even get into the part where you're kind of keeping score about who's hardening whose heart, okay? In Exodus 4.21, before it all begins... The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, don't misunderstand this. God is not saying that he is going to create evil or sin in the heart of Pharaoh. That is not what this says. No, the hearts of human beings ever since sin entered into the world, have always been hard towards God unless he intervenes. God did not create humanity with hard hearts. This is an effect of sin. But sin has hardened our hearts, and our hearts are hard towards God unless God intervenes. Jeremiah 17, 9, the go-to verse for giving counsel to anyone who says they're wanting to follow their heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now here's a mercy of God that he shows to all human beings. Because you need to understand this. God does show some degree of mercy to everyone in the world. Just like we talked about last week, that God has shown love to everyone in the world. He's made the sun rise on both the the good and the evil. he's, he's, He's blessed us with all these different things. His mercies have been new every morning. Don't miss the fact that Pharaoh experienced a lot of mercies of God in his lifetime. He experienced a lot of sunrises and good food and laughter and 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 crops and all this stuff. Like, like, Don't miss the fact that Pharaoh experienced a lot of mercies of God in his lifetime. And here's a mercy of God that, we all, that all of us experience. Our hearts, while we just said that sin has hardened them, our hearts are not as bad and depraved as they could be. They are not. And that is a mercy of God. He has to some degree restrained evil in our world and in the hearts of men and women. Don't ever think that it can't get any worse because he has restrained evil to some degree. This is a mercy of God and he's done this through some external restraints like civil governments and military and police. He's also done this with, with, in human beings with some internal restraints like, our, like having a conscience. And when these things are operating properly, they serve God by restraining evil and causing our hearts to not be as bad as they possibly could be. This is a mercy of God on all of humanity. And so human beings, because of the mercy and grace of God, we are not as sinful as we possibly could be. 
But apart from God giving us new hearts and soft hearts, we all have hard hearts. And all they need to get worse is for God to remove some of the restraints. I mean, you can, you can see this in the world, some of those restraints I just talked about. See what happens when you remove those. God is the agent of Pharaoh's hardening and preparation for destruction. I do believe that, but we need to clarify that. He's not the active agent. He is the passive agent, meaning that he is simply giving Pharaoh over to what his heart already wants. Haven't we already seen this in Romans? It's consistent with what Paul's been teaching us about the wrath of God back in Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we talked about how God's wrath in the present doesn't always look like lightning bolts, right? But down in 24, Romans 1, 24, he says this is what the wrath of God typically looks like right now. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You see, this is what is happening with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God is giving Pharaoh over to the lust of his heart. And in the wise providence of God, God is allowing Pharaoh to resist his revealed will in order to accomplish God's sovereign will. As Johnny Erickson Tata put it so well, she said, God will at times permit what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Your Bibles are going to make a lot more sense to you if you go in with that understanding that God will at times permit what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God will at times permit us to resist his revealed will and all behind the scenes he's accomplishing his sovereign will. God gave Pharaoh over to his hard heart so that God could be glorified in his display of both his mercy towards Israel and his judgment against Egypt. And think even what this is gloriously pointing us to. I mean, where do we look to see the glory of God in the display of both mercy and judgment? Don't we look to the cross? Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and took the judgment and the plagues that we deserved so that we could receive the mercy and grace that we didn't deserve? On the cross, the glory of God was revealed through his display of mercy and judgment. Christ took what we deserved so that we can receive from the Father what the Son of God deserves. Don't our hearts awaken when we think of the cross? God glorified through his display of mercy and judgment. And so listen, church, let me clarify again. God does not force someone to do anything against their desires. But thanks be to God and his mercy, he does choose to change some of our desires. And then at times in his wisdom, for the sake of his glory, he does at times turn people over to their desires. God is glorified in both his mercy 
and his judgment. But listen, here's where we need to understand what God delights to do. Because he's not just flipping a coin 50-50, sometimes mercy, sometimes judgment, sometimes mercy, sometimes judgment. He doesn't equally enjoy both. That would not be a proper view and concept of what the Bible teaches us about our great God. And so the question is, as we come to this fourth point, is it mercy or judgment that gushes out of the heart of our God? Just a few verses after that glorious phrase in Lamentations 3 that we heard in our call to worship. Just a few verses after that about how we heard the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. God's word goes on to say in Lamentations 3.32. He says, but though he cause grief. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lonely, which is one of, the, one of the books we'd recommend to you out on the table, he brings to life the writings of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, who describes God's mercy as his normal work and God's judgment as his strange work. Now, human language always falls short to some degree of describing God. But I think that phrase is helpful and true and faithful to the scriptures. Some of the men that preached of the wrath of God more boldly than anyone believed that that was not his normal work. That was his strange work. That's not what God was on the edge of his seat ready to do. God is eager to be merciful. He's ready to dispense grace. He's quick to forgive. The Bible describes him more like in regards to judgment. He's, he's patient with those that, are, that his wrath is coming upon. We're going to see that later in chapter 9. He's, he's bearing with Pharaoh patiently. He sent 10 plagues. It wasn't one and done. God is slow to anger. Ezekiel says that the death of the wicked is not a delight to him. He's not enjoying that. But know this about our God. He delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing mercy. So back in Exodus, Moses, you know, he's asked God to show him his glory. And in Exodus 34, it finally happens. God puts him in the cleft of the rock. And in Exodus 34... Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Notice verse 7. Kessie, you can leave this up on the screen. Verse 7, it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That steadfast love is his covenantal love and mercy that God freely chooses to shower his people with. But notice he's not stingy with it. 
Yes, he says judgment will still come to the third and fourth generation, but that pales in comparison to his mercy and steadfast love for thousands because that really could be best translated as he's a God who keeps steadfast love to a thousand generations. And it's not a literal thousand generations. We won't get into that, okay? But that's, that's God's way of saying that this mercy and steadfast love that he has is not going to run dry. There's going to be so much more mercy flowing from him than judgment. I mean, we get caught up on the third and fourth generation judgment coming and all that, and we're not sure about it. The point is his mercy is way greater than his judgment. His mercy is going to swallow up all that. God has chosen to set his mercy and steadfast love on his people forever and always. And yes, judgment and wrath are still going to rightfully fall on some that God has given over to their sinful desires. But what is gushing from his heart and what is bringing the nations in is the abundance and the greatness of the mercy of God that he is extending to more and more people through faith in Jesus Christ. And Moses, upon hearing of the glorious mercy of God, he bows his head toward the earth and he worships. He worships. May that be our response today as we consider the glorious mercy of God. 